Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Hear God's word. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's go to the Lord now and ask his blessing on this, his word. Lord God, enlighten the words, the heart, the mind of your servant and enlighten the ears of your people. Give them the eyes of faith. We want to behold more than information. We want more than knowledge about you. We want you. And so give us yourself, even this evening, in the reading and preaching of Holy Scripture, through our perfect mediator, Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, again, we are here. As I said, for now the third and the last time to come and to uh, look at this. And so as we have come and looked at the second commandment, we have looked at it through three lenses that I've repeated and may repeat again. We've tried to consider the commandment in, uh, in, its, um, in relation to Israel, then in relation to Jesus Christ, and then also in relation to us as we are related to Christ, of course. And so we considered the commandment as it comes to Israel. We saw, first of all, that verses 4 through 6 are indeed the second commandment, because as I instructed you, there is a great deal of discussion and debate about that. But looking at Scripture, comparing Scripture with Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 4 especially, we see that there is a separate commandment which deals with how we are to worship God. And it is without the images that are spoken of here. Uh, We also saw how Israel broke in a very public and unique way the commandment to not worship uh, false gods in Exodus chapter 32, as Israel did that, but even as they were redirected by Aaron to try to worship the true God through this image that was created, that too was a great sin and a breaking of this commandment by the nation of Israel. And then also we saw how this commandment relates to uh, Jesus Christ. We saw on the one hand that God from the very beginning, unlike the pagan nations who they end up the, the worshipers of the false gods, they create the images of their gods and then they take them into their temple where they worship those images. God, on the other hand, creates the image and he puts the image in his temple. The image is Human beings, Genesis 1.27, Genesis 2.8, he puts them in the garden temple. They're not worshipped. They do the worshipping. And so that's really one important reason why we don't create images of God. He creates the image. And then we saw most ultimately that though um, we are the made images of God, the created images of God, there is also an uncreated, an unmade image Colossians 1.15, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, eternally, 
is the image of the invisible God. And who he is, is shown forth through this one and is revealed to us preeminently in Jesus Christ. So we have seen these things, and as we have looked at this commandment, indeed, we have seen that it is distinct from the first commandment, as I've just said. Uh, The first commandment shows us not only, uh, the first commandment shows us who we worship, the second commandment shows us how we worship. And so tonight, I would like to consider that in its most broadest sense, how we are to worship. We're going to go beyond what we looked at previously, that God prohibits his worship through images, even as we saw last time. Even there is good reason to say through images of Jesus Christ himself. But now we're going to consider uh, how we worship most broadly. Because once we see that who we worship is separated from how we worship, we ought to ask the question, how are we to worship God? How, we, how should we do that? And tonight we're going to do that looking at the second commandment and then looking at some biblical concerns more broadly. For those who are familiar with this issue, it will concern that which we, which we commonly speak of as the regulative principle of worship. And so tonight, as we look at the second commandment, as it relates to us and our worship, I want to make two points or consider it in two ways. We want to see how uh, God directs us to worship him in obedience, but we also want to see how God directs us to worship him in freedom. We want to see how God directs us to worship him in obedience and also in freedom. Well, again, this this is the commandment which concerns how we are to worship God. This is not just something that I came up with, by the way. This is what our standards, this is how our our secondary standards understand this. If you look at question 109 of the larger catechism, it says this, What sins are forbidden in the second commandment? The sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and any wise approving, any religious worship not instituted by God himself. And then it goes on to speak specifically of the, of the thing mentioned here, the making of any representation of God. And that understanding found in the larger catechism is part of the broader principle of worship, which is uh, given, um, which is expressed in Westminster Confession of Faith 21.1. Listen to this. This sets forth uh, the broad principle of how we are to worship God in obedience to his revealed will. Westminster 21.1. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. So that is simply to say that the worship which we are to give to God, how we are to worship him, we are to worship him in accordance with his revealed well, in obedience to how he commands us to worship him. Very simply, if I can put it this way, if it's not commanded, don't do it. That's what we commonly call the 
regulative principle of worship, which if you want to know how to distinguish that from the way some others might think, there is a, what's referred to as the normative principle of worship, which says, well, we can do what's commanded and we, well, we should do what's commanded, but we can do those things which are not forbidden as well. So how do we make sure that our understanding of the second commandment here and of worship, how we are to worship God more generally is correct, that it's not just confessional, but more importantly, that it's biblical. Well, let's test the thesis that God only wants to be worshipped in, in positively in the ways that he commands by looking at some other places of scripture. And first of all, we look at in the book of Exodus itself. Later, God is going to give a lot of instructions about worship and the place people are to worship. And so we read in Exodus 25, 40, see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is going to be shown you on the mountain. Now, again, that concerns the construction of the tabernacle, but it brings forth a broader principle that worship is governed by a pattern. And who gives that pattern? Who reveals it? It's not the pastor, not the elders. God reveals that pattern. Moreover, we can see how that works itself out and how God really does understand worship to be prescribed by him. Uh, you may know about the situation in a later book of Moses, Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Let me read to you that passage. These are the sons of Aaron. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And so here these priests are the sons of Aaron offering fire but it's it's different it's it's not the fire that God has commanded and God takes this so seriously you know, they, they meet a sort of a, a fitting in having offered fire which God does not prescribe they themselves are consumed by fire Calvin says of this passage certainly Nadab and Abihu did not wantonly or intentionally desire to pollute to pollute the sacred things, but as is often the case in matters of novelty, when they were setting about them too eagerly, their precipitancy led them into error. Let us learn, therefore, so to attend to God's command as not to corrupt his worship by any strange invention. But you may say to me, but Pastor York, Pastor York, what if, what if we are just really sincere, sincere about worshiping God in some way that we, we just want to do it out of our heartfelt love for God? What about that? Well, we have an example in the Bible of that, or at least one who expresses that. That is the example of Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 3. There God tells uh, Samuel... Or he tells Saul, rather, uh, through Samuel, to strike Amalek and the, the, the Amalekites and to devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, 
But kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. And we read later on that Saul does devote some things to destruction. But we read that he spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. Now, why did he do that? Why did he do that? We're told in verse 15, he wanted to save the best to offer up to the Lord. It seems like a a good intention, very sincere. And so God says, oh, well, you're sincere. Uh, That's fine then. No, (laughs) that's not what he says. We read in verse 22, uh, uh, Samuel comes and and he is just... Uh, can't believe what he's seeing, and he says, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And so serious is that offense. He says to Saul in that passage, you have rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Now, may, you may say, well, that's the Old Testament. Uh, God has lightened up since then. Now, the thought here is that God cares less about how we worship him today now that the fullness of revelation has come in Christ than he did then. And so let let me turn you to some New Testament passages. The first passage is from the Gospel of John concerning the Samaritan woman, John 4.22. And Calvin comments on that passage which says this, uh, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman who is asking about the proper place to worship and he says you worship what you know not we worship what we know and it's it's comparing worship as it is being given through the jews to the samaritans and at least the jews have going for them this they're they're worshiping in some regard to god's revealed will Calvin says, all good intentions, as they are called, are struck by this sentence, as by a thunderbolt. For we learn from it that men can do nothing but err when they are guided by their own opinion without the word or command of God. And further says this, God is not properly worshipped, but by the certainty of faith, which cannot be produced in any other way than by the word of God. That is so true. You see what he's saying? If God is to be worshipped with the certainty of faith, that we know that we are worshipping God the way that he wants to be, do it, that he wants us to do it, then he must tell us. And where would he do that? The word of God, the Holy Scriptures. Another New Testament passage that would help us, you know, well, that was then, this is now. And God, you know, he doesn't, he's not concerned about that so much, or regulating worship. Hebrews 9.1, the writer of Hebrews says this, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Now, get the language there. You understand when he says, even the first covenant had regulations for worship. What does that tell us? Even the first one did. So now we are in the second and last covenant. There are also regulations for worship. And if he's not saying that, then his whole point falls apart. How do you know what God wants you to do in worship? So simple. You look at the Bible. 
The Old Testament, to be sure, but the New Testament, certainly for us who are of the New Covenant. For example, we look in Paul's letters and we see that there is commanded prayer, singing, confession of sin, offerings, especially the reading and preaching of Holy Scripture. Are is also commanded the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Now you'll say, Pastor York, sounds like pretty much the things that we do. And I say, precisely, precisely. I'm really so thankful that the Lord gives me instructions on how to lead you in worship. It is such a relieving thing to me. So the first point, we worship God in obedience. But now let us look at the second point. How do we worship God? We also worship him in freedom. Now, you may be saying, now, wait a second. I thought you just said we worship in obedience. Now you're saying we worship in freedom? How? That can't be true. If, if we are constrained in our worship, then we're not free. Well, it's true. We're not free to do whatever we might want or whatever we dream up. But worshiping God in accordance with his will is the most free, the most liberating kind of worship that is possible. I'd like to give you several reasons why worshiping God in obedience to his revealed will is liberating, is truly freeing. You come into an incredible kind of freedom when you worship him that way. Uh, First of all, when we worship him as he commands us, and only as he commands us in the scriptures. We are free from the capricious, unpredictable, and frankly, sometimes despotic dictates of humanly imagined worship. You see, human leaders of worship often come up with all kinds of ideas about how to worship God, um, and they think they are great ideas. But Jesus has something to say about this. We read this in Mark chapter 7, verses 6 and 8. He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And isn't that always the way it ends up? It's a tradition of men. It sounds real good as it's proposed, but what always gets laid aside? The command of God. The traditions of men topple and displace the commands of God, particularly in worship. Um, I had a, had a wonderful discussion with some folk in our new members class today, it was really helpful for me, actually, uh, asking, well, yeah, why is it that we worship uh, in the way that we do as opposed to other ways? And again, I just had a, a very simple answer, remarkably, beautifully simple, I think, in accordance with the principle of sola scriptura, that the scriptures alone are the only infallible guide to our life and to our doctrine. We do what God says, and in doing that, we are are liberated from the capricious, 
often contradictory ideas. You know, you'll go to one worship service and it's it's directed in one way and you go sometimes to another and it's directed in a very almost contradictory way here. There's a freedom to be had in worshiping God in the way that he commands. In fact, if you understand that, it is one of the most liberating and freeing things you will ever experience. When you worship in a church that holds to this, your conscience will be able to rejoice in the liberty of worship that is in accordance with God's will and not in accordance with the ever-changing, often oppressive dictates of men. Well, that's the first freedom. Uh, Secondly, and related to this first point, worshiping God only according to what he positively commands in Scripture uh, frees us to worship him in a way which he finds acceptable. Now, we've kind of touched on this, but I want you to think about the, the liberating, the freeing aspect of this. Think again of Hebrews, uh, this time Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. There, the writer of Hebrews says this, Let us offer to God, listen to this, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, For our God is a consuming fire. Acceptable worship. Now that passage, now mind you, that passage is a New Testament passage. Presupposes that there are ways which you can know that you are worshiping God in an acceptable manner. And of course, then there would be unacceptable ways. How do you know? How are you going to know that the worship you offer to God, God finds acceptable well it's very simple if God doesn't positively command it prescribe it you don't do it and if he doesn't command it you and I we're doomed to kind of forever grope in the darkness it's like we got to roll the dice maybe it's acceptable to God maybe it's not the writer of Hebrews tells us that there is a worship which is acceptable to God we would never know if he doesn't tell us but he does tell us. And that's so freeing. It's liberating. We're free to know if God tells us that the worship we offer him, of course, it's always uh, flawed as it comes through us. It's only acceptable as it comes through Jesus Christ. But are those things that we do acceptable? All we have to do is roll the dice and guess. That's not freedom. That's tyrannical oppression. The writer of Hebrews, in telling us that we are free to offer to God acceptable worship, again, presupposes that we can know. And we can know. It's so simple. We look at God's word. Again, we saw it. I'll repeat those elements. They're they're just set forth clearly. Some in the old, most all in the old, but in the new as well. Prayer, singing, confession, offerings, reading and preaching of scripture, and the sacrament. And that's pretty much it. Thirdly, worshiping God only as he commands frees you to have worship, which is, if I can put it this way, truly relevant. Worship which is truly relevant. Um, We often don't like to talk about, you know, whether our worship is relevant or not, but I think it's okay if we understand who determines what is relevant. Who ultimately determines the kind of worship which is relevant? Who ultimately knows the kind of worship that we need 
as created image bearers of God. Is it not? Who would be better than the one who makes us? And if we worship as he commands, that means our worship will never, ever be parochial. It will never, ever be provincial. It will never, ever be limited to a particular place or a particular time. Uh, I find the idea that we would want to say, well, we are in favor of American worship over African or Asian worship. I, I find that idea absolutely abhorrent. And that's why uh, you'll, you'll never see, at least I will never uh, suggest that we, you know, we bring in an American flag up here. It's not because I'm not a patriotic person. I have a lot of patriotism in me. But uh, I would, and I hope you would find the idea that worship should, that it should be defined exclusively in, in Americanistic terms, not to be a good idea at all. In fact, consider again that passage in John 4, where Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman. She says to Jesus, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. And how does Jesus respond? He goes, yeah, Jerusalem. No. (laughs) He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. Jesus is saying the hour is coming where the place of worship is of no real importance, the earthly place. And brothers and sisters, that time is now. It's right now. When Jesus ascended the mountain of the Lord and in his ascension opens a way up to that place for us to come into the heavenly temple, he did that so that our worship may principally be there. And on the Lord's day, in a, in, a, in a way that I can't fully explain to you even, we are, we are supernaturally, by God's power, by the Spirit, lifted up to that place. That's the teaching of Hebrews, which says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come there to meet with God in heaven. But notice, if you read on in that passage, it it doesn't say we just meet with God. It goes on to say this. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You want to talk about worship, which is truly um, cross-cultural or perhaps Transcultural, the most <laughs> trans-cross-cultural worship you can ever get. It's worship which takes place along, alongside all believers of all times, from all places, now united together in one place. You want to talk about contemporary worship. Uh, that is the most contemporary worship possible. It's worship which accords already with the age to come. Now, to the degree that worship is tied to this world, to this place, to this time, it's it's hollow. It's empty. It's superficial in the extreme. It's parochial and imprisoned to a particular moment of human beings just groping after what God might want. It's not freeing. It's not 
It should not satisfy you. God wants those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And we do that through Jesus Christ. And we do that in the dictates and the revelation of his word. Well, in conclusion, we've seen how the second commandment, which tells us we are to worship God in a particular way, directs us to worship God in obedience to his revealed will, positively according to what he commands. Uh, That's one thing that we see here. But we also see that it's worship not only done in obedience, but worship done in freedom. Because when we worship God as he commands, we are free from mere human tradition, free to worship God in a way which he will find acceptable, free to worship him in the most relevant way possible, free to do so in accordance with the way that he created us and in fellowship with people of all times in all places because it's not restricted to this place or to this time, but to the time and place which will endure. Let me simply close by saying this. If you are doing all these things, if you are a master of the regulative principle, but you are doing you are directing all of your worship through your own effort, none of that will help you at all. You must worship God through Jesus Christ and in faith in him. Unless you do that, none of the rest of these things makes any difference whatsoever. Yes, God does care how you worship him, but the how makes no difference if ultimately you're not worshiping him in the who, and that is in Jesus Christ. And that's why the writer of Hebrews, which gives us all of that wonderful information in Hebrews chapter 12, I I just go back to again and again. He concludes by saying this in verse 24. We come to God, we come to the mountain which cannot be touched, to the heavenly city, New Jerusalem, to God, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so I pray that this day, Worship ultimately according to that way, to the way that is opened up through Jesus Christ, the blood that is better than the blood of Abel, that you might be in his presence, not just one day in seven for the rest of your lives, but eternally gazing upon his beauty, enraptured by his loveliness.